Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. What's up, everybody? We have a pretty sweet one here lined up for you guys. All of you long-range nuts, you gun nuts out there, we know there's a ton of you. We're going to discuss something that I, I love oxymorons, and when we say this phrase, it'll seem to many people like a bit of an oxymoron, which is long-range muzzle loaders. Not something you think about every time you think muzzle loaders, but uh, that is the topic at hand. We have an expert across the table from us here, and uh, he's never been on the podcast before, so we're going to let him introduce himself. Luke, why don't you go ahead and tell the people who you are, where you're from, what you do, all that good stuff. Sure. Um, Luke Horak, uh, Arrowhead Rifles. Formerly Arrowhead Sporting Goods, but specialize in high-performance muzzleloaders. Uh, kind of got into it out of necessity growing up in Iowa. Struggled with the slug guns for years and years <laughs> and years. And Savage uh, came out with a smokeless muzzleloader back in, I think it was 2004, I want to say. And that was that was a really good step in the right direction. You kind of had to know how to, to baby them to get them to work. But we, we found out that rebarreling them to a 45 cal, you could increase the performance, stretch, stretch the uh, the distance, and uh, there was a real need for rebarreling them. The only supply source at that time had like a 16-week lead time, so I saw an opportunity to get in there and stock the barrels and then just kind of turned it into to a passion, and now it's a, a full-time job. Uh, two years ago, we relocated to uh, Phoenix, Arizona. My wife had enough of the Midwest <laughs> weather, and... Uh, so now I get to sweat in the summer, but right now it's about you know sixty degrees during the day there. It's the wow, reason why bad. everyone moves there. And, yeah, glad you made it yeah. to Wisconsin, Luke. Not yeah. Bad. yeah, well, at least you are in Wisconsin now. At the time of this recording is December in twenty nineteen. Actually, this is going to release probably in twenty twenty. That's pretty interesting. But we're we're working with like fifty degree weather here. It's very bizarre. It yeah. is. It's yeah. strange. Yeah, it was really nice yeah. for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. So. So let's talk about muzzlers, and before we get into the really high-performance ones like you tend to deal with, and like I think some of the ones sitting on the table here, we even have a barrel action sitting on the table here as well. Before we get into the high-performance stuff, why don't we get a base knowledge for those who aren't as familiar with muzzleloaders. Muzzleloaders are a thing, they've been a thing since, I mean, when? Like Four, was, 1400s. Were they like the first kind of Yeah, actually firearm? probably before then. I don't know when the Archibus and Matchlocks came out, but, but yeah, I mean, firearms, if you will. Yeah. yeah, they were the, the first step. We were using those, I mean, we were using those in like the Revolutionary War, oh, yeah. right? Civil yep. War, all yep. that stuff. That was yep. like your classic musket. Yep. I mean, they go by many de- names. Yeah. Muzzle loaders, some people call them muskets. Yep. Some people call them front loaders. What else? I mean, if we, if we, I mean, if we really break it down, like the spirit of the arm is that you load the charge from the muzzle as opposed to the breech. Yeah. So... You know, whether we're looking at this Hawken we have on the table, which would be like an example of something out of the 1860s or Luke's setup over here. We've got a barreled action uh, that he did for, for me. You're still putting the charge down the barrel, powder bullet, and then priming from the rear. That that really hasn't changed in, you know, 400 years. Right. Um, you know, the projectile course did and the, the powder charges did and maybe even the ignition sources. But they all work mm-hmm. pretty much the same, load from the front. And they get kind of a stigma, or I, I feel like a lot of people have the uh, the idea that muzzle loaders are sort of big, ungainly, not that 
impressive as far as uh, shooting performance goes. You know, they're sort of the encased in the primitive weapons class where maybe you get a longer season or a more generous season length with muzzleloaders, and people think that's because, well, all muzzleloaders are pretty meh in the performance department. Maybe I can shoot out to 150 with them. Likely not that accurate. Right. You know, they are kind of a pain, perhaps, to load as compared to somebody with... uh, bolt action or a cartridge fed or a magazine fed rifle or something like that. But that's not exactly the case. Like, like you said, we have a couple different ones on the table here. Now explain how these different muzzlers work. Cause like you have the Hawken, like you mentioned, and then now more modern ones like Luke, you're dealing with, you said smokeless. What, what's the difference there between some of these old ones and the newer ones? Do you want me to start on this end? Yeah, sure. Go ahead and start old and work our way up. We'll we'll go to the, the, for those of you watching this one, um, we have a Hawken muzzleloader on the table, or Hawken style, right? Yeah. So it would have been a a hammer gun, a side hammer. You cock the hammer before you shoot. It's got a double set trigger. Very traditional. Kind of the first step into a a quasi-modern arm. We're going away from using a match lock or a flint for ignition. We're actually using a contained cup. Um, at the time, they were called percussion caps or just right. caps um, to provide us our spark. So if we were to, if we were to disassemble a cartridge um, that we're all familiar with, you know, like a metallic cartridge, and you held the primer in your hand, not unlike a percussion cap, right? It would go over a device called a nipple, which is on the side of the gun. Well, you know, when struck by the hammer, create a flame that would go through a, a tiny little flash hole that would then ignite the powder charge uh, in, the, in the barrel, propelling the projectile you know, down the bore. Typically, these guns fired a patched round ball uh, later on um, and, and with some military influence, and they went to a full bore or full diameter projectile that had a hollow base that would expand to fill the bore for, like, increased velocity and accuracy over distance. Say a patched round ball, are you talking about literally what I think of when I think of, like, way old school, yeah. like a mini cannonball? Cotton, cotton patch ball. and a, a, a round lead ball. And there was a patch around it to basically seal up the yep. space between that projectile and the bore. Yep, correct. Exactly okay. correct. And you know, you could call it a, an early sabo. Really, is what it, it was. Right. I've never thought of it that way. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. And so traditionally, these were you fired only black powder in these, like real black powder. And it wasn't until probably I'd have to look back at when when uh, some of these black powder substitutes came out. Like Pyrodex, for example, would have been probably the late '80s, early '90s, yeah, sometime right. in that time frame. Yeah. But but everything was real black powder that you were putting down those bores. And then as we move up the line or up the lineage here, uh, we've got an example of a, a really early, what I would consider a, a high performance muzzleloader of its day and age. To my like, when that came out, like I felt like that was a revolutionary step, truly, in muzzleloader. Yeah. Like, what is on, this, and kind Remy? of in some ways, that's kind of like. In my opinion, is that the first inline? Um, if first, no, it wouldn't be the first inline. It'd be like a first, like high performance inline, though, like turn bolt. You With know, like a bolt action. Yeah, I okay. mean, I, re- I remember drooling over them in outdoor life. Yeah, when absolutely. They came out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a Remington seven hundred XL. Is that what's called? ML or ML? Yep. Sorry. Yep. Like before that, I didn't really have any interest in muzzle loading, and then when that came out, I was like, now I'm muzzle loading. Right. <laughs> and so at the time when when the MLs came out, um, one of the hottest uh, ignition sources out there was a musket cap, which this one uses. 209 primers, of course, were on the scene, and there was a couple of companies doing stuff. Knight had the, the disc rifles that had an insert for the uh, that priming system. They also, I think they had a disc insert for percussions. And I think a yeah. lot of these came set to use uh, 
number 11s. Okay. And then you had converted to muskets. So I bought this one like that. Okay. But I think it was a conversion, though, because I know my dad's well, used that, number that, 11s. To convert that, that's just screwing out the nipple and the okay. breech plug. It's, Put the new one in. Yeah, yeah, it's real straightforward. So then that ignition source could then touch off some of these new substitutes, which were, you know, reportedly higher performing than, than say, black powder, possibly, you know, more stable. And that, that's pretty often debated even today. And so turn bolt design, you know, truly a high performance rig. Uh, I think the concept. Have you looked was, at it with the bolt closed? You'd think it was. You would think it would. I mean, a couple of things would set you off. Yeah. A very large diameter barrel and right kind of up here where it makes that nipple going into the breech plug or whatever. And the screw in the side of the receiver. Yeah, there. Yeah, 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 the big screw in the side of the receiver. But other, otherwise, it looks pretty much like a regular Remington 700. And, and this has an exposed breech, which is kind of notable, I guess. You don't sure. see that all that often anymore. Right, right. Hmm. Yeah. Is that kind of like when you'd get the old N64 GameCubes and they would have like a see-through controller? I so think so. you could so. see like... That's yeah. Yeah, the same premise. Kind of see like yeah, all the electronics and stuff. Get the drop on how it all works. Yeah. 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 And so that that really was, at the time, really a high-performance arm for muzzleloaders. And it was, I think, priced accordingly, too, uh, when it came out. Like, it was an expensive gun yep. uh, relative to a lot of the other stuff that was out there. And, and in comparison, like, looking at... at a non-turnbolt muzzleloader from the time to that, like there was a huge difference in like mechanical qualities. Like the 700 ML represented the Ferrari, whereas most everything else was kind of the Yugo of the Did line. something, I mean, can something like this, does it have better potential, the Hawkins style? Oh, yeah. yeah. In terms of what it can do. Mm-hmm. But why is that? Lock time. You know, lock times. Yeah. The the time in which the, the firing pin even just travels forward to hit the primer. Um, whereas this is considerably slower. Like you pull the trigger and it's like cue the Jeopardy music and the hammer's falling and then it strikes and then it goes off. So you can certainly learn to shoot a Hawken very well if mm-hmm. you're if you're patient, you've got good form and follow through. But this is not terribly far off of what you would expect lock time on your regular bolt action rifle. Right. Okay. Um, and then just, you know, manufacturing tolerances. Uh, it's a modernization, you know, some of the older Hawkins. And, and maybe this is a poorer example because it's technically a modern Hawken patterned after an older Hawken. But, you know, period correct stuff was, you could call it crude. I mean, e- even if you looked at, you know, a vintage Hawken compared to a repro, a vintage Hawken looks like it was made in 1865 because it probably <laughs> was. But yeah, no, you can get away with higher chamber pressures in, in something like this than something like this. Um, the ignition source is arguably more reliable, um, and, and just the fit and finish makes it a more shootable gun, perhaps. Um, and you can put modern optics on it, whereas something like this was not done so easily. Oh, Eventually, yeah. TC really, I think, owned the Hawken, TC and CVA in the 70s and 80s owned the Hawken market. Uh, there was like a big resurgence in just recreational shooting of muzzleloaders at that time, and, and they did have provisions for mounting scopes on it. Um, I think some people thought it was pretty blasphemous to put a scope on a side hammer gun. Sure. Um, and it looks goofy. Uh, it does. So, it does. Yeah. It looks very interesting. It's like a pirate gun with a modern <laughs> scope on it. Right. And then fast-forwarding, you know, the better part of a decade, we have a pretty good example of just a modern inline. And it's not really any higher performance than, say, the 700 ml. Uh, but possibly more refined. So like Mark had mentioned earlier, 
an exposed breach, which in some states is still a prerequisite for hunting. Right. And I think at the time, that was a prerequisite for many states, yeah. which is why they there was like the standard model, if yeah. I remember correctly. So you, you had to have this exposed breach or a swing hammer design or, or side hammer design to like put you at a disadvantage mm. if you were going to use this gun to hunt. Okay. Um, which is kind of funny. Essentially, yeah, was- your ignition sources. Exposed to the elements. Right. I was having a conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago about when Knight went to the shotgun primers. I think they were the really the first ones to yeah, go right? that route. And the ATF originally classified that as a modern rifle. Did they really? Yeah, that's what oh, I, wow. I, I didn't. I think that was before my time even. Wow. But they actually no had kidding. to spend a bunch of money with lawyers and stuff and prove oh, that geez. it wasn't. Prove that it wasn't. Wow. Well, that's yeah. one thing I think a lot of people don't realize too is that these muzzle loaders technically. Most uh, of them. Most of them. uh, Some of these ones, like the the new Remington, like the new Remingtons, and the 700s, and some of the stuff that you work on, is based off of an actual firearm action, right? Right. So So that that is classified as a firearm, right? You're going to need to do the 4473 transfer, yeah, yeah, purchase, yeah. But some of these old school inline ones, are not correct. Yeah. So like like this one here, this is a Thompson Center Omega. It's a gun that they don't produce any longer. Uh, but I've had this one since like 2004, 2005. Mm-hmm. Technically not a firearm. You could order it, you know, from your local retailer and ship it to your door. Yeah. Um, At the time of this recording. Correct. Yeah. If you listen to this. <laughs> anyway. Uh, if you live in this country. If you screw something up, <laughs> you so can't like sue us. Right. In some other states. Um, so, yeah. And then, and then this would be the, I think, a really good exemplification of the inline. So 209 primer ignition, same primer that shot shells use for ignition. And it's in line with the bore. So is the Remington. This one, I think, really captures what the spirit of the statement is, in line muzzle loading. Mm-hmm. You know, and then can be used with black powder or substitute. Uh, and, you know, it is, by my standards, really quite a modern arm. Mm-hmm. Um, it shoots very well to 200 yards. And, and if you really monkeyed with it, you could bring it further. But that, that's about what that one's good for. It's got a pick rail on top, too. It does, yeah. It's a, uh, my preferred way of mounting a scope, anyhow. But What's the deal with the powders? You talk about real black powder, mm-hmm. black powder substitutes, mm-hmm. smokeless powder. Maybe it's maybe I said like a couple of those things are the same thing. I don't know. But what's, what's the deal there? I'm assuming different powders can help you get better performance or oh, yeah. better reliability. Yeah. Or, or what's, what's so the deal with that? We'll let Luke speak to smokeless, but... With the black powder and black powder substitutes, I think they kind of fall into their own category. And then what Luke does is something completely a whole different animal. Like regular black powder, like real black powder, is actually pretty hard to come by. Not a lot of places carry it because there's some storage requirements for it. It is pretty darn volatile. You know, it's very temperature and moisture sensitive. So it's not very common. You don't just go down to a gun shop and be like, I'd like a pound of 3F Swiss um, because most of them don't carry it. So, like, when I order, real black powder. I have to order it from an outfit down south. I have to pay a very large surcharge to have it shipped to my house. And then I have to store it in a special container hmm. so that if it decides to go nuclear on me, I don't, you know, lose my house. Is that a thing? Yeah. Black powder, I, I, I can just decide to just... I don't know anybody who's actually had it happen. You, like, you have what, to be... I mean, I've heard a few stories of people getting a ramrod pretty... shot through their hand because they got over, overly aggressive right. seat in the charge. But, really? Oh, no yeah. kidding, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So is it's and it's just fresh, pre- pressure pressure sensitive then? Yeah, if you compress it hard enough. Like and diesel. so it didn't like a well, I guess like if you're uh, like a cap or no. Or well, that would have a flame to it, but uh, I mean it's a it's a whole. No, like it, like I think Mark's saying like, like if you like a, if you strike oh, when you're a, camp, a kid. 
Yeah. You know, like you have the little... Brian, were you, ever, were you ever a kid? Smash, so. You smash it with a rock, <laughs> and then the compression <laughs> pop. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that, that was probably black powder inside of those things with another substitute, like the same stuff they put on a match head to create kind of a spark. Oh, okay, gotcha. And then black powder substitute is kind of this, I'm not even going to call it a hybridization, but an interesting go-between between true black powder and its chemical composition, and then smokeless powder and its chemical composition. It's closer to regular black powder. It's synthetically produced. It's definitely not smokeless powder. does a lot of what black powder does at similar pressure curves and ignition rates. It's very fast, whereas like smokeless powder is very slow in comparison. Probably with the one exception being black corn. True, right, which, yeah. which is its own interesting entity as well. Hmm. Technically considered a substitute, but acts a lot like smokeless in in terms of velocity generated and cleanliness and pressures and things like that. Well, I know in like my my personal evolution of muzzleloaders, like I when I started muzzleloading, I was using Pyrodex, mm-hmm. which stunk, very sulfury, very yep. dirty, and then That's a black powder substitute. Yes, black okay. powder substitute and then 77 came out and that seemed to be a better option. Yes. And now Blackhorn 209, which isn't smokeless powder, but falls between the two the yeah. two. It's still considered a substitute. I think it's as close to the performance of smokeless and, and like the convenience of smokeless without being smokeless. Would you, would you load those types of powders that we're discussing in like the traditional Hawken style rifle? Or? You could not reliably ignite it in a traditional Hawken. It might go off sometimes, but I doubt reliably. Definitely not. Right. Yeah. In in the and is sem- that because like the black powder actually is more sensitive? So well, or it, not? I think it's really two different mechanisms for ignition, right? Because the black powder is more of an explosion. Sure. Right. Yep. Where smokeless or blackhorn two hundred nine is a is a, a burn. A burn. A true. Okay. Yeah, burn that you need pressure and heat to yeah. really. Touch off. So if you were to take a spoonful of black powder and put it on a table and a spoonful of smokeless on the table and take a match and touch it to the black powder, it'll go boom. And it's like woof, gone, big cloud of smoke. Okay. If you do the same thing to smokeless, it's like it's like it fissions a shh and you get this long shimmer like a sparkler in your hand. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. But and that stuff doesn't work in the old traditional no. style Hawkins because huh. they're they're designed for an explosion. Correct. That fast igniting volatile powder. Um, huh. the, what is it about them that makes them design more for that? I'm not, I'm not a chemist, so I can't really speak to how it all works. One is nitrocellulose space, and the other one would be what? Oh, I mean, what is it? Not about the powder, but about oh. the rifle that makes this rifle not like the. Well, just the amount of spark or flame you get from a cap to start with, it's just not enough to oh, set off okay. the reaction. Got it. Got it. Um, and then, like Luke said, when you contain smokeless, and this is where his design becomes extraordinarily effective, when you contain it and then expose it to like pressure, like you would in a cartridge case or a chamber, that burn that, you know, if we lit it on a table, would take a long time, relatively speaking, compared to black powder to burn out, happens fairly instantaneously within the chamber, but develops chamber pressures remarkably higher. Um, and, okay. And that's where. He comes in and will explain these phenomenal devices in front of us. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, I guess that's maybe take a step back and just talk about, you know, what I'm talking about now doesn't apply, you know, just to make sure we're clear because I don't want anyone (laughs) going out there and thinking, well, my gun can shoot black horn and you guys have said that's pretty comparable to smokeless. So 
I mean, they're, they're still two totally different animals. You can build a lot more pressure with smokeless. You really have to know what you're doing just yeah. because we talked about how smokeless powder burns. So you've got all different kinds of burn rates and smokeless anywhere from pistol powders, which are going to be closer to black powder and that they burn really fast right. and hot. And then as you move up into the larger calibers, you move into slower burning powders. But if you, if you don't know what, what you're doing, you can get yourself in a really dangerous situation right. quickly. Mm. Uh, so, so with mine, we're actually building on a rifle action. This particular one's a, a Savage. Uh, I think it's Model 10. Yep. And uh, Ryan's got a... Oh, is this yours, Ryan? Yeah. Technically, it's Mark's. <laughs> <laughs> We've, uh, he's, he stuck with the, a 209 shotgun primer in this one. Uh, it's just a, a bolt head. The Savage bolt heads are yep. really easy to swap out. I personally have, have gotten away from the shotgun primers as much just because they're, they're not designed to handle as much back pressure as a, uh, like a, a cartridge case. Uh, we'll, we'll get into these later. Uh, so to, to protect the shotgun primer, we actually, I don't, I don't have a shotgun or a 209 plug along with me, but, uh, we'll use this as an example. So with the, a gun using a shotgun primer, we, we stick the orifice in the plug way out here on the end. And then there's a, a cavity down here in the breech plug called an expansion chamber. And so you, you ignite the charge and that's that burn happens. The pressure is backfilling into that expansion chamber. And, uh, if, you know, if your expansion chamber is too small, then that sh- shotgun primer starts to see the actual pressure that's in the barrel oh, sure. and you can run into, you know, you, worst case a Pierce primer right. uh, or a bulge primer that sticks in the bolt head. Uh, but by doing that, by sticking the orifice clear out here, you've, you know, you've stuck your, your flame source quite a ways away from the powder and mm-hmm. smokeless powder is fairly challenging. Uh, to ignite so you can run into if you if you have too loose a fit or you're, if you're not using a wad under your bullet you can have ignition mm-hmm. issues the latest and greatest thing i use is this uh brass module that takes a large rifle magnum primer and uh that goes in here the orifice in this particular plug is you can see it's i don't know if it'll show up on video here but the plugs recessed, so the powder actually sits uh clear down here so you only have about five eighths of an inch from the primer to the powder so mm-hmm. it's a very uh, oh, hot, wow. hot ignition. Hmm. And, uh, since this mimics a, a, a rifle case head, then there, you know, there's, it can handle the full pressure of the load. So we don't need that. There, there is no expansion chamber, uh, in this plug to shield the, the primer like we do with the shotgun primers. Okay. So to, uh, to rewind a little bit sure. here too, and go back in some of the, some of the terminologies that have been thrown out there. So just to paint the picture again, for those listening right now, we have an action, and a barrel coming off of it, just like you would normally expect. Now, as usual with muzzleloaders and things, the barrel is probably a little bit thicker than most that you see on most uh, traditional rifles. But think of like a bull barrel or something like that, or close to it. This breech plug thing that you're describing, that's obviously not something you normally see in a regular rifle. Normally, you'll see in a regular rifle, you open up the bolt, you pull it back, you can see all the way down the actual barrel through the chamber and into the into the barrel. But in this case, there's a breech plug between the actual action like where you open up the action and would see down into it and then the barrel right that's right yeah the breech plug just slides slides right in there okay this and it screws in basically and then that is what you're seeding this whether a primer of sorts whether it's this nifty 
brass thing that holds a magnum rifle primer or a shotgun primer, whatever that's, it seats into the back of that. And then your firing pin that you would ordinarily see on a regular old bolt will then just pop the back of that. It sends a spark down and ignites it. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, essentially it's a single shot rifle is is what you've got. That's loaded from the muzzle. Mm -hmm. muzzle. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. These are, uh, I remember when we, this isn't the same rifle that we sh- took out to the rest of the Exact shot, clone. Right? An exact clone. Yep. Okay. And yep. when we were doing that, we were doing where we actually had like a 308 case with a primer seated into it that we like oh, sliced off. How that, that was work? That was a slightly different version of, and one that, that Lou can weigh in on too. That was a, a setup, kind of the, the modernization of this one, the Remington Ultimate, which uses a modified 308 Winchester case right. as its priming system. Actually, I think it's a 458 Win Mag. Oh, is case it? Okay, it's cut it, down. Yeah. Oh, never mind. I, I don't even think it's. Maybe it's cut down. Okay, not sure. But and it yeah. looked almost like what I would expect to see, like a nine millimeter or something. Yeah, like there. Like yeah, or a very long 45 ACP. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was say. I thought it was a 45. Yeah, they have the same case head. It would it would use the the same yeah. case head dimensions. Okay, um, which was I really think a novel way to increase inline performance getting away from the 209 priming system because there's been a whole bunch of kind of goofy adaptations over the years. So I've got quite a few of these Omegas, and I had one set up. Or no, excuse me, it was an Encore, which is made by the same company that used the 25 ACP case conversion. Mm-hmm. So instead of using a 209 primer, I used 25 ACP cases, which I thought at the time was going to be this great idea. And then I found out that one does not just simply buy prime 25 ACP cases, <laughs> nor does one readily come across 25 ACP reloading components. So it worked. It went bang. I really didn't see any benefit from it. I was actually using duplex sabots in that gun, too, if you remember those when those were kind of hot. bases. Yeah. yeah so okay. sabot, sabot, small diameter projectile. I think it was oh. a 40 or 375 diameter projectile. And that was a whole different nightmare. When it did shoot, it shot very well, and it, it put numbers up that were, you know, vastly different from what this would. You know, fast forward almost 15 years, and I got introduced to Luke, and when I got my arrowhead, it was, when I read the initial readings off the chronograph, I'm like, well, welcome to the big leagues. This is <laughs> this is completely different. Like, what kind of velocity are you guys talking now that we're talking about? Old stuff or Luke stuff? Luke stuff. What's the most Maybe you both. get out of your 30-inch yeah. guns? One versus the other. What? Uh Thirty-three hundred, yeah, feet per My second. My lord, yeah, yeah. And that's shooting uh, one of these big old bullets, right? We got uh, that would be with a little lighter bullet, a little like a two hundred seventy-five grain bullet. Oh yeah, oh, one of those light two seventy-five. Yeah, right. Christmas. Yeah. Jeez, like, <laughs> that, the, these are three twenty-fives, you know, around three thousand feet per second. At them. But put that into perspective, and that at the muzzle is stomping a three thirty-eight Lapua in, ter- in exp- terms of numbers. Like so, explain when you say the numbers. Because what is the three thirty eight Lapua doing out of the two hundred eighty five at twenty nine fifty? About really? Yeah, it's about what one of those do. Just no. just about double the ballistic coefficient, though. R- right, so and, that's and that's the, where the Lapua that's wins. Crazy. Yeah. Is that because it's so? Wait, where does the Lapua win? BC. Oh yeah. Oh, because it's not. This is like a G one profile, right? It's well, it's a forty five cal bullet. Yeah, instead of a three thirty eight, no boat tail. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so while it's a slippery bullet it's not anything compared to you know what one of those bullets will do i think when i was shooting your uh 300 abs they had a a bc at the velocity i was at at around 0.39 or 0.4 yeah that sounds about right about about that whereas a a comparable weighted lapua would be somewhere in the 0.7s to 
0.75. But the, you know, the energy and velocity produced with the bullet weight at that velocity is, is very much comparable. Okay. Yeah. So to get, to get down to really what is making, what is making like these muzzleloaders that you're working on, Luke, versus some of the ones that we discussed early on, what is making them so incredibly high performance like this? Well, so is what, it, like what what's happening in there? Well, for, first we're starting with an actual rifle barrel steel, so that's that's something that's not always given on the muzzleloader because manufacturers are going to build with the assumption, you know, the pressures are going to see their recommended load. So with these, we're using a, a rifle barrel from a center fire rifle barrel maker. Uh, the breech plug system is designed to handle the smokeless level pressures, and then the ignition's hot enough to to touch off the the charge, and then I guess the other key to the equation is is we're we're going full bore or, or no no sabot. So this this bullet's getting run through a custom swaging die, which I didn't remember to throw in my bag for the trip <laughs> up here, but it, it fits in your reloading press. Every, every barrel has a just a slightly different diameter, uh, and every bullet comes off the pre, you know mass production you know is going to be a little bit different diameter. So. You, this isn't necessarily something that's for the for the, the guy that just wants to go to Walmart and buy a you know a pack of sabos and some pellets and load. There's there's more more to it than mm-hmm. than that. But the so we're we're swaging the bullet for a custom fit in the bore because there's there's essentially no buffer. You're either either it either fits good or it's too loose or it's too tight. It's got to be sized perfectly. How do you do the, that exactly? Are you, you're talking about almost like milling a bullet? Is that or like squeezing or it. a yeah. So oh, squeezing it. Yeah. So you're not shaving any way. You're not doing that. You're you're squeezing it. So so where are you getting the swage, and then how are you swaging those bullets? Sure. So the the swager, uh, a guy by the name of Tom Post, his company Swinglock out of Pennsylvania. He has the patent on an adjustable sizing guy. You can go to like Lee and order swagers and steps, and it's it's super cumbersome because you're you know you're just guessing and checking. So you might end up ordering a half dozen different swaging dies to find the one that works for oh my gosh yeah so that that's hmm. no good so he, his system has a compression ring you turn the dial you know turn it clockwise the bullet gets smaller turn it counterclockwise the bullet gets bigger so you're just a little bit of an iterative process usually can do it in like two or three bullets and then you okay. dial in the fit to the barrel and so that's that's how the and the the swager runs in you just screw it into your reloading press i like using a lee hand press because i can throw it in my bag and and take it to the range, but you're just. This is a 452 caliber bullet. This is uh, a 450, you know, 450 land uh, barrel, 458 grooves, and we're we're sizing this down to ride down on top of the rifling. So okay. we're we're just bumping it down like a point zero zero one a, a thou is what it's going down. So very very minute adjustment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it rides down on top of the rifling, and then when you get that ignition. I liken it to snap sealing a tire where you, you get that mm-hmm. pressure surge. And these, you know, you think of a bullet as a fairly static thing, but under that, you know, 40, 50,000 PSI, it becomes somewhat fluid and actually obturates into the rifling. Hmm. And that's how you get your, your engagement and your that's accuracy. A, it reminds me a little bit of like what we were talking about with Ian when he was discussing barrels with us and oh, whatnot. right, you know? yeah. I mean, like that bullet, it's hard to imagine a bullet being gripped by the rifling, but that is pretty much what happens. That's also why I remember when we first, uh, when I first 
loaded one of these muzzle loaders, I was surprised at how much effort it took to push the bullet down. Now, it wasn't obviously like, uh, you know, plunging a really difficult toilet, but I mean, <laughs> it's like it takes, it doesn't just sort of like drop in. No. I, I remember watching, you know, like the, uh, watching the old movies about, you know, whatever, The Patriot or whatever, and it seems like they just kind of, like, pop something in and just kind of, like, whoop, you know, it just sort of goes down. That 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 ramrod is only there to just sort of, like, give it a nice pat. Well, they, they may have been running them like that. And, and, a, smooth, and a smooth board, board perhaps, yeah. too. When it's 10 feet, or, you know, however close you're trying to shoot, yeah, right, right? Yeah. you don't need the, <laughs> the precision. <laughs> and I, and I got to say, and for anybody who's listening, like, thinking, hey, I want to get one of these performance muzzle loaders, and then we hear that, oh, there's all these dies you got to have. Like, initially, I was set up, with my thought process here, like, okay, this is going to be kind of a, a pain in the butt to do. And I think I text Luke when I got everything in and I had my reloading press set up with a swaging die. I'm like, okay, well, how do I do this? And I think you told me to do it. You, you, you'd said that you'd seen an average, you know, turn the dial to two on this, run it through. And then the load pressure should be one handed and consistent. through. Yeah. And, and like you said, I think I got it on the second bullet. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, it's not rocket science. And, and it went from not fitting at all to to literally I could take it and I could run the ramrod down with, with one hand and, and like a lighter than firm grip. Yeah. And he said, that's perfect. Yeah, like it's not hard to put them in, but they, right. don't, they don't like drop so, right in. Right. This method actually likes a little bit looser fit than like say something with a Sabo. And I think that's a, that's an issue with people with, uh, I get a lot of calls about, people struggling with Blackhorn 209. And while Blackhorn's not smokeless, it still has a lot of the similar char- characteristics. And uh, if if you're shooting with a Sabo and you, you know, they sell easy load Sables, all that stuff, and that, that might be fine with a lower pressure black powder load, but with Blackhorn, as the, the pressure goes up some and there's more heat, if you don't have a really tight fit with that Sabo, this, the bullet's able to slip, and it ends up deforming the Sabo, and that, that causes a lot of the accuracy issues. What's a Sabo again now, for those not familiar? Uh, that plastic sleeve. Yeah. Is that, that like this yeah. bullet over here? No, there's, well, this is, kind I'll of. let Ryan talk about this. I'm not Jim, really familiar Jim, it's the French that. word for shoe. Yeah. Oh. Is it really? It is. Yes, sir. And so all, all it is. Uh, sounds French. Like, it, <laughs> when we were talking about that patch around the ball, that was a very early Sabo. So it was sealing the space between the ball itself and then the bore. Mm. So the gases can't escape around. Correct. And then it, the it can actually projectile. grip and spin yeah. that ball. Now, you could accomplish the same thing if you had a ball that was exactly the groove diameter, um, and you'd have to, like, force it into it and, like, cut form the bullet, but then you end up with letting issues. So you're depositing the material of the projectile onto the bore itself, and then that's a whole other, you know, ball of wax. So they used paper patch for that, or not paper patch, excuse me, uh, cloth patch for that uh, for a long time. Well, when, when polymers came on the scene, they started using these this plastic for a Sabo or Sabot, as some people call it. it you know, it's tomato, tomato. Yep. And it just went around a smaller diameter bullet to fit the bore. So a lot of a lot of 50 caliber inline muzzleloaders, the Sabo diameter would be 0. 0.50 or approximate. The projectile diameter would be very similar to Luke's here at like 0. 0.45, 0. 0.458. Hmm. Um, so it made that that distance up between that that bullet's jacket and then the bore itself. And then like Luke said, it provides a good seal, a consistent seal, so that one, it contains the gases, the pressure curve can, in, or well, the pressure can increase, and we can propel it down, um, and then prevents 
you know, that, that gas from slipping past it, creating accuracy issues. Um, and where it gets wonky, uh, I think is what you were talking about. If you're loading high charges of Blackhorn with a Sabo in your gun, do you, I mean, do you even recommend people shoot a Sabo? Out no, of I mean, you can get Sabos to work. I've, I've quit guaranteeing accuracy because they're you, so finicky, so finicky. Yeah. You get into June, July when the weather starts heating up yep. and you take more than two shots. It, like, even with Blackhorn, if you if you feel your barrel and it feels warm, you might as well stop. I mean, some guns will shoot okay, sure. but there's a good chance that's that's enough to soften the sabo. And you get those oh. like I tell guys guys that are shooting sabos, if you get your first two shots of the range session are good, and then it goes to to pot, then that's that's fine because that's that's more than likely that's just barrel heat sure. is what's doing that. And that's so, super good to know too because yeah. I imagine there's some guys that are have spent days at the range pulling their hair out well, trying to you know fix an accuracy issue yeah. and really they just need to let their barrel cool a little bit more when, when i first i started this business eight years ago and that's all we were doing was sabos and it was june july would roll around and i'd start getting calls yeah. you know off the hook my you know my guns what's going on with it and it's yeah it's it's barrel heat i re, i remember when i got my uh first savage muzzle loader and i got it in august and ran out you know behind the barn and started shooting and I, you know, I was, I could load fast and it was, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that baby was cooking and, uh, I was not hitting anything. I mean, it was, I was, you know, it was just spraying like a shotgun and it was, I mean, barrel heat and the, the charges, uh, Savage recommended were a quicker burning powder too, which doesn't necessarily help your right. case because it's right. really disrupting that, that Sabo. And okay. so that's, that's actually what got me into the high performance. Well, I, I mean, I, talked about that a little bit at the start yeah. already but the even more background is the struggles i had with the the savage muzzleloader and then the internet research and found mm -hmm. a, a message board where guys were really digging into it and you know i did eventually get that 50 cal savage shooting yep. really well i yep. mean it it was a uh, you know about a year-long process and different sabos different powders yep. and, and that stuff but uh yeah the, the more is not necessarily better with sabos like right. don't don't necessarily run up to that max charge, especially if it's hot out. Right. So and that's that's going to be the almost probably the weakest point of that entire system. It would be like trying to take your car to the you know performance car to the track with retreads and wondering why you're yeah yeah tearing off beads and stuff. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Fascinating. So at what point, like with all that said, like when did you say okay, we need to go to a full bore or full diameter projectile? I'm not going to take credit for coming sure. up with that idea. You know, I saw other people doing it, having a lot of excess. Tom coming out with that adjustable sizing die sure. really made it a lot more feasible okay. for people to, because like I said, buying a half dozen Lee sizing dies or and swagers and trying to figure out a fit that and and every brand of bullet, you know, a different jacket thickness, even a different like I have these in three different weights. The they won't all necessarily take the same setting on sure. the die. Okay. So that's a whole lot of trial and error and not really practical for, for most people. Sure, sure. Uh, and then, you know, there is a downside to it. With a, with a Sabo and a forty five cal, we're shooting a, a 200-grain bullet, really mild on the shoulder. This 325-grain thing launching it, you know, anywhere from 27 to 3,000 feet per second. I mean, you you really feel it when you when you touch it off. But... The benefits of not, you know, being able to go out. Well, now that I'm in Phoenix, I mean, I'd probably have committed suicide by now if I was trying to get 
test right. fire guns in Phoenix with in August with sabos. Do, does anybody, right. does anybody <laughs> but, shoot your rigs without a muzzle brake on them? Well, I'm glad uh, you're shooting the full sizers. Right. Uh, a couple of them. Yeah. Just, I, I, and those guys, I I test fire the ones I build, but yeah. I, I'm like I'm test firing with a reduced charge. If you sure. want to shoot the full, you know, the full horsepower load or power to you. Right. But, yeah, I, you I, f- I found it to be quite pleasant. I mean, I, I thought with the muzzle brake on when yeah. I shot yours, I liked it. It was not, it was not bad at all. I mean, it was, you could tell that there was a big powder charge going off, but like felt recoil was, there's, it was less than my ultralight 308. There's a lot of gasket yeah. dumped in the brakes, yeah. put that to mm-hmm. get work. I do think yeah. I have moderate tinnitus though after shooting. That oh, no doubt. Yeah. It, it's a flash and going off. 36 inches. You got heavier plugs. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. yeah. Mine yeah. worsened that day, Jim. Yeah. I was already deaf, so I'm good. Not much difference. <laughs> well, we've talked about these bullets. Like, you know, we've talked about round balls. Yeah. This is, we've talked about the diameter, but this is yes. a very different looking muzzleloader projectile. This thing right over here, for those who are uh, watching on camera and haven't necessarily been able to see it yet, sitting here, it looks. It looks like it's going fast just sitting there. It, it looks, looks like, like a it, jet it does. airplane. It does look like a jet airplane. It looks like a nose cone of an F-15. It, I mean, it's it crazy. Kind of looks like Hornady's new A-tips. But yeah. yeah. And it's also two-toned, so you have this uh, large body of it, which is in that you know classic bronzy bullet so color. The- and then you have the uh, the tip, which is the silver part. And, yeah, explain, explain these things. What's going on here, yeah. Sure. So I'll be honest i'm not a bullet maker so i can't get into the real in depth and how they're manufactured but the the nose is a turned aluminum part so that that's Mm. actually machined yeah there's really no good way to form that yeah uh, with a you know a punch or something like that so that that's actually turned on a on the lathe and then it's just your basic copper jacket lead core cup and core bullet okay Uh, i guess one of the things i will talk about is this the Jacket thickness is consistent throughout the bullet on this. So this, this particular bullet's a 21 thousandths jacket. Uh, some of the other bullets out there that are in a 452 caliber, uh, like Hornady's SST, not exactly sure the, like I said, I'm not a bullet maker, but whatever process they use, the base copper is much thicker. Sure. And that actually, you know, I talked about the bullet obturating, swelling right. into the rifling when you shoot it. That's actually, the copper is the hard part of the bullet. The lead core is, I mean, there's different tin levels and stuff. Mm-hmm. You can make them harder. Mm-hmm. But the in this case, it's the, the copper that's the hard part. So if you got a bullet with a thicker copper base, especially if you, end up, if you go a little too loose on your fit with like an SST, it'll just rattle down the barrel and you'll see keyholes sure. on your target. Or this, with the, the way it's made, it's got the thinner copper all the way through, which makes it obturate into the rifle. And so when you were you were playing with that, you, you were basically starting with, what, pistol bullets? Right, like XTPs. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Or maybe, did you ever run, like, dangerous game bullets, like the DGXs or anything I, like them? No, I, I didn't. It's all, like, the 240 and 250 grain? Yeah, uh, Parker Ballistic Extreme. Okay. So you got a okay. 15,000 yep. jacket. That, that's a, you know, the BC isn't very good on it, but it's, it at 100 yards, you'll shoot them all in one hole because right. it's got a... So you thousands. you found that balance between jacket thicknesses of either too heavy and like a conventional pistol bullet and too light, right. and perhaps one of those. And well, and then the other issue you run into is, I mean, these are we use these for hunting, so yep. they have to, you know, if the if these don't expand, they're no they'll right. just pencil right through, and right. you'll be chasing whatever you shot all over the the countryside. So a twenty twenty one thousandths jacket seems to be a fairly happy medium right. of actually getting some 
expansion and still being able to uh, shoot accurately. Yeah. You know, if you if you bump up more to like a twenty eight or so thirty thousandths jacket, especially as you get out at distance, can be really prone to, okay. to penciling, and and they're not as shootable with sure. the the thicker jacket. Okay. So are these like bullets that you would also be able to load into like a traditional cartridge too? Or are these specific for muzzle? So these do have a little softer jacket than what you would typically use. Okay. I mean, you in theory could use them in like a 450 Bushmaster, but they're probably going to copper foul. Okay. Fairly, oh, fairly got it. Badly. Sure. Got it. Yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually talking, my bullet maker is supposed to sample me some with a harder copper jacket to try and reduce that and then offer them to the the hand loaders at one oh, yeah. higher BC. Cool. Is what? that aluminum tip? Is that just for the BC to improve the BC? Exactly. Yeah, that's all it's for. Okay. It's BC. What do you tell people who look at the different, there's a couple of different sizes as far as like bore diameters or sizes of bullets that you can, because there's the 50 cal and then there's also some other like 44, I think it was, or 40. What are the sizes of in muzzleloader like, Size the right word? 45. Caliber? Yeah. Is caliber the right word? Caliber. Or? Okay. 45, 50, 52, 54. All right. Are, are, and probably more so 45, 50, and 54. The 52s have kind of gone away. 58s are completely it's, gone. I'd kind of put 54s in that. Category. Almost gone. I mean, are, They're all, I, don't, yeah. I don't. Does anybody retail those? Hard, I mean, I mean, tr- more along the lines of traditional arms right. like that. But, um, you know, in, in a modern inline, it's 45 and 50 are yeah. probably the predominant. Yeah. And then do you do you even do a 50? No, not okay. not really, because my my take on the fifty is you're really about the only state you're going to put a fifty to use for is elk hunting, in Colorado. Yeah, you can't you can't use optics. Right, you got to use a full bore bullet. You know, there's a lot of factory fifty cal's that will get you that. So don't right. don't right. handicap yourself in all the other states building a custom fifty cal. You know. Spend your money, build a nice forty-five right. cal, and you know piece together right. a factory fifty cal and, for your well, and like iron you were sights. Saying, like you were saying earlier, I think you know for a long time, you know, kind of using sabots was like kind of like the standard, right? Mm-hmm. So essentially, you are running a forty-five caliber bullet, right? And now you're just running a full diameter forty-five caliber bullet. Exactly. Hmm. Yep. So why is forty-five procedures better than fifty? Is it just because you don't need a fifty? So why go bigger when you well, can? You don't need the sabo, so you could, you could, you can shoot a fifty without a sabo. But to get a fifty cal with an equivalent BC to this, I haven't done the calculations, but I'm going to guess you need like a five hundred grain bullet. Yes. So oh, okay. So, so if, you know, if you think the recoil's bad with right. with this, you know, just wait till it's you. It's easier to get a full diameter bullet with no sabo using the forty five right. caliber than it is with the fifty. Right. And and I've actually done down to twenty, if not very many, just a handful to the guys who are really into it, but like three seventy fives and twenty five cals, and hmm. so you can you can, I mean it's a single shot rifle right so you can yeah you can shoot whatever you want but the, that's kind of what I'm, I'm getting out of it yeah is that yeah, basically the state to state regulate most of this i mean there's some states where you can use those smaller calibers yeah. but 45 is kind of the universal one that gives you really good coverage if you like to hunt mm-hmm. in different states yeah. the state regulation thing is one i feel like we'd be remiss to not even bring up you know because and again this is one of those things that can vary at the time of this recording whatever but some people they look at the muzzleloader thing and then they'll see, well, am I in one of those states where I can't use an optic? Or if I do use an optic, it has to be no power. Or, you know, am I in a state that has, you know, the 50 caliber thing or whatever? 
it's always good to go and check the regulations. But what's it seems as though the muzzleloader regulations have been sort of a moving target lately. Yeah. Um, because we came out with the Crossfire 2 muzzleloader scope, remember? Oh, yeah. And that was yep. just like a 1X optic. It's not variable at all. It just had a simple crosshair in it. It was something that would let you... It would look and feel. You had turrets like a rifle scope, yep. but no power. We came out with that, and then there was... I don't remember how many states at the time that could that would benefit from that. Yep. Very shortly after, they said, nope, you can use regular optics on your muzzleloaders now. But now it's kind of coming back, I feel like, some of these regulations I've, I've heard. Well, like Luke had mentioned with Colorado specifically, they really do stand out for their, their muzzleloader seasons. Loose powder, no sabot, no optic. So far as I know, they don't have a priming restriction, and you could use like different types of sights, just no scope. Um, and no red dot or anything like that. It has to be an iron-type sight, whether it's like a, a buck-style sight, you know, with a rear notch and a front blade or a peep sight, hmm. um, that kind of thing. Like Idaho and Washington are pretty tricky are as well when it comes to that sort okay. of thing. Like I said, check your regs. Actually, but Washington just liberalized their regulations quite a bit what last did they, year. What did they change then? Well, I haven't actually seen anything in writing, so I'm okay. speculating. But from a customer who claims he has an email, they pretty much... Opened it up. Opened it up yeah. to everything. It's no open. kidding. When really? I was yeah. in, when oh I was boy. in Minnesota, yeah. when I started muzzleloading, which see, I want, there you go. Check your eggs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which was old. I want to say I went on my first muzzleloader hunt in 2004 um, in Minnesota. It was they had no powder restriction, they had no bullet restriction, but you couldn't use scopes. So when I had ordered this one, you know, I had it set up with a rear peep and just the front, and then you know shot with that. Well, about two years ago or three years ago now, they changed so that you could use optics mm-hmm. in Minnesota. So really now I could take my, my arrowhead gun over to Minnesota if I wanted to as well uh, and do that. And, and actually I had originally re- reached out to Luke to have my muzzleloader built from him for the state of New Mexico mm-hmm. for elk and ibex hunts that they have down there because they, are, they do allow you to use rifle scopes. They do allow you to use, well, you could use a Sabbath if you wanted. And they don't have uh, a regulation against smokeless. Oh. I think if you dig into that, it it is blackhorn. Oh, yeah, excuse me, yeah, uh, uh, blackhorn. Black you, black you can horn, yeah. you can use um, you can use the the optic on there. And yeah. I wanted I wanted a rifle, a muzzleloader that I could shoot to three hundred yards, maybe more if need be, on on a game animal. So I have an ethical uh, device for take. And mm-hmm. this is the answer. You know, we're 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 pushing velocity so much higher than than what I could with any of my other inlines. That you know, three hundred yards is not out of the realm of, of possibility for a hunting situation, and, and probably more. I'm sure you've got customers that have told you, yeah, definitely tons of stories, so. further than they should probably be shooting. From a recreational standpoint, yeah. maybe not a hunting scenario. Like, how far have you shot these things and had like accurate impacts? I mean, I've I've gone to eleven hundred yards, but that's not necessarily like you can get to eleven hundred yards with about anything, sure. right? Because going to a thousand with a muzzleloader isn't necessarily in, right. You probably can speak to that more than me, yeah, but I mean, turn they, of the century. Yeah, right? they, were they, shooting, were, they were shooting a rifle called the Gibbs rifle to a thousand yards back in the 1860s. But like, with, yeah. I mean, we're getting there what? with a lot more energy and right. stuff with these things, but with the numbers we talked about, you know, 3000 feet per second around the, you know, 0.4 G1 BC. I mean, you guys are probably, you know, doing maybe running the numbers and saying, Holy cow, I can go seven, 800 yards with this. And yep. The, the issue you run into is it's it still is a muzzleloader. So you get 
one shot, then you have to stand up, reload. <laughs> right. You know, you don't, there's no cider shot right. with like right. with a rifle, right? You don't send one and then a half second later, yeah, you got by the, the time next you're done reloading your muzzle or the winds change. Could, yeah, the, yeah, exactly. That's, so that was the biggest aspect that I found challenging with, with even the high performance one is the wind. Yeah. In as high as the BC numbers are and the velocity numbers. So I've shot mine to 547 yards, 500 meters. We've got a silhouette range. And when it's still like sub minute of angle, no problem. Yeah, not yeah. like it's as easy to shoot at that distance as my 308 is. But if the wind picks up, that's a big cross section on that bullet, yeah. and that wind moves it with authority, and not a lot of wind too. So no, it's you'll be out there shooting, and you know you're hitting to the left, and you thought there was no wind, right. and then you're like, oh, I guess there was right. just a little breath of wind coming from the right to left. So yeah, it's hmm. if you want to stretch it out, you know, I. I'd say somebody who really puts in their time, you know, four or five hundred yards is yep. doable. Past that, you know, I don't yep. think anyone or yeah. hardly anyone's good enough to to call the win yeah. ethically. Uh-huh. So here's a question for you. Is it possible to do a higher BC like boat tail bullet out of a muzzle loader, or does it have to be this flat base style bullet? You you can do boat tails. Some of the guys that are really into it are playing with it more and yeah. more. But the part of the problem is is so when we when we push the the bullet uh, through the press, it's it's pushing on the base, and it's it's really easy to deform the base. You have to have a custom punch to to fit the boat tail for starters. And mm-hmm. then we talked about that obturation. It seems like the flat base bullets obturate into the rifling more readily. True. Okay. So it's it is, but and then you're also adding weight. So a lot of the the guys that are playing with the boat tails are mostly going into the, like the 375 caliber, smaller, the smaller yeah. calibers because the, the weight just gets so ridiculous. In it. Yeah, and then it's not really a hunting gun. It's just it's not because you're running into the regulations and yeah, stuff. Somebody who wants to do extreme muzzleloading just because they <laughs> like a challenge. Sure, just because. Yeah, which that's a good enough good reason. Enough reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it seems kind of like if you try hard enough, you can truly make these things into pretty much as much of a competitor to a regular rifle as you, as, as you want. Yeah. But it's just that it starts, I mean, what you just described there is like, well, you just ruled out hunting. You just ruled, ruled out anybody who wants to just sort of be able to buy a bullet and load it and go. You're talking about a high, highly custom setup that they're really putting a ton of effort and uh, experimentation into or whatever. You sort of have to figure out where you are on the chart or on the spectrum. Do I want to just get something where I can buy it, buy whatever stuff at Walmart, and then go shoot it? If so, then maybe my performance is going to be limited, and I might have a gun that's maybe a 150-yard gun. The cla- right. the, what people probably classically think of when they think of a muzzleloader. Yeah. If I want to go a little bit more high performance than that, then maybe I have to get a die here, be able to do this there. But like with something that you're working with, that's kind of that happy medium where still fits in with the hunting regulations... You need to do a little work on your end to, you know, size these bullets right. You need to do some stuff like that, but it's not quite crazy custom jobber yet. Right. Yeah, and that, and actually on the full-on customs that I build, I, I actually set up the die and all that, so then the customer is just pushing, oh, okay. pushing the bullets. Oh, there you go. That's nice. Yeah. 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 From, from, like, a consumer's perspective, I found it relatively turnkey. I mean, I, I put it together and... Yeah, and you actually got the more do-it-yourselfer yeah. kit, so... Yep. Yeah. yeah, and, and so I, w- I was impressed, and, and like I said, the first five rounds over the chronograph were 
astounding. And I think my standard deviation was like 5.1 feet per second. Yeah. Which amazing. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no, like you take out a lot of the equation, right? Cause the bullets in the rifling, yeah. there's no throw, right. nothing, you know, there's all that's no such neck, thing neck as neck tension. tension. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and the case, which is really weird to think about. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause we're like, we're, we're devolving the arm here. We're going to a muzzle loader, but somehow we're improving yeah. it by eliminating the weakest point of the center fire cartridge, which is in fact his case. Right. Yeah. And and so when huh. I when I saw that and the first like you could have fit in just barely over the diameter of this projectile, perhaps one and a half times the diameter of the projectile, you would have fit all five shots. And I just laughed. I thought this is this is comical how good this shoots. And it wow. worked too. Uh yeah. So Jim shot a deer that was the deadest I ever seen a white tailed deer get. That was I wish it I I wish I would have brought in the remnants. Uh, the yeah. remnants or the round that we found because I would say 99% of this material from the actual jacketed projectile portion was still there, mushroomed out and everything. Yeah, and like, then we even found the little aluminum the tip. tip. That was cool. That was it was almost better than, than everything. We were like, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Don't drop it. I think, actually, we did set it in the snow, and we went back, and we dug around. We oh, found yeah. It. That, that's right. It did. Yeah, that did happen. I can't, I can't believe we Somehow we found it. found it in the deer and then also found it in the snow. Right. So I guess another thing I didn't touch on... And, Probably should give a, a shout out to a couple other Wisconsin-based companies, but Brooks and Bartlett Barrels. So those are those are the two main sure. barrel makers I use. And, and one of the the critical aspects of the performance, since there there is no buffer within the Sabo, that that bore diameter needs to be controlled from the muzzle right. all the way down. Right. Okay. And that's actually a little bit counterintuitive compared to center fire. A lot of the match barrels, I think, a choke is somewhat desirable in a center fire. Right. Well, if you end up with a choked muzzle or barrel with this, you're hosed because you have to size the bullet down right. small enough to make it past the constriction at the muzzle. Right. And then you end up loose on the powder. And that, you know, then you're not getting those single digit ESs right. if right. you're loose on the powder. Okay. But the, those two companies do an excellent job controlling the bore diameter. Just super tight wow. tolerances. All the way down. All the way yeah. down. Okay. Yeah, you don't yeah. hear many people talk about choke on center fire rifles. If at all, like I don't think you could pick up a gun rag and start reading through, and they start talking about varying levels of constriction throughout the bore. That's not intuitive. Like you, you no. choke in your shotgun. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. But a lot of centerfire rifles have that, and yeah, that's that's pretty wild. That is. Uh, yeah. Wow. You learn something new every day. How do the how do these barrels then differ from the more traditional style? Well, the barrel. Brooks and Bartlett are both doing a cut rifled barrel. Okay. Which I've found like. I've had button rifled barrels that are accurate, but bear in like across the averages, the cut rifled barrels are much more consistent yeah. because they don't introduce the stress that the buttoning process does. Jim, we just otherwise did. wouldn't never have known what you're talking about. But Ian came in and talked to us all about, about barrels, but, and now about I, I can't believe I actually know what you're talking uh, yeah. about. I was actually all- surprised there wasn't a. Follow-up question on that. Well, a, lot yeah. of pe- a lot of people And if just you do have a question, listen, check yeah. out. To Ian Clem discuss button versus cut rifle barrels uh, on one of our more recent podcasts. And so likely on some of these older barrels or these more traditional style barrels, you're talking about like a button style cut into and it's a rifle. And it's more affordable generally for a, yeah. a barrel manufacturer to do a button versus a cut. Yeah, totally. Uh, Less time. I think Green Mountain's a real popular one. Mm-hmm. And they, I mean... You, you'll run into green mountain barrels that'll shoot this mm-hmm. way just fine, but then you'll get some that are yeah. junk. So, One other thing, 
because as we were talking about barrels, and as I look over at Mark's guns, I've heard some funny stories about Mark's guns and the <laughs> barrels. And one of the things that has been alluded to is the cleanliness and the finickiness of muzzle letters. Now, a muzzle, like, I think I have. Any, a, if any children are watching right now, if we're going to show a picture of that barrel, we should probably cover their children eyes. Cover your eyes. <laughs> um, so. I've got a I've got a Ruger American centerfire rifle, and uh, I've, I've brought it up many times on here. I bought it back in uh, two thousand and right, we're out, I guess we're almost in twenty twenty. If you're listening to this now, you're in twenty twenty probably. And I bought it back in like twenty sixteen, I think twenty seventeen. Yeah, does that sound about right? Yeah. Like when they first came out with that rifle. Yeah. I haven't cleaned it since. Nah. don't need to. It keeps going. I, I put a suppressor on it. That makes it even more dirty in there, but it just keeps getting better with age. The dirtier I get it, the better it gets. These things are not that way. No. Right? Mm-mm. Well, explain. Mine, mine are. You, as, as can much, you, you can do that with well, your... Well, it's smokeless. Because it's smokeless powder, powder so it's yeah. the same kind of powder yeah. that are in like a 6.5 Creed mortar. So right. you can go out and just kind of shoot it and then be like, okay, cool, I'm done, head home and be done. Yeah. The traditional style ones, though... Especially in Wisconsin, yeah. With so the humidity. Explain, explain what's happening here. So is it just rust? It's powder. It's the it's the powder itself. Um, the and and the barrel steel, right? So to, to speak to the steel, Luke had mentioned barrel steel versus not barrel steel, and like qualities of steel, not a metallurgist, so I can't really dive into that too much. But the powder, like black powder or black powder substitute, less Blackhorn two hundred nine, because uh, I. I I've got guns that I started on Blackhorn 209 that shows zero indication of uh, corrosion in the bore mm-hmm. whatsoever. But the black powder and black powder substitutes are will go highly corrosive and less than highly corrosive. The stuff absolutely attracts moisture and then like catalyzes it into this metal-eating monster that destroys bores. And so if, if you don't have like a, a, a very adhered to cleaning regimen with them, they can turn south overnight. Uh, like I've got, really, yeah, I've got a traditional muzzle loader, like very traditional, slow twist, shoot a patch round ball. Like I have to season the barrel with special vegetable and and animal fat based lubricants uh, and and coatings to basically turn it into a cast iron skillet on the inside, yeah, so that yeah. it doesn't attract or uh, allow for the pro- proliferation of surface corrosion. Whereas stuff like this, you know, when these black powder substitutes came out and they said not corrosive or less corrosive or whatever. Not true. No, no. no. I mean, it's like <laughs> saying it's like saying that like a match is slightly less hot than a <laughs> burnsomatic torch. This does not mean put it in your mouth when it's lit. Uh, it will still burn. But it's still fire. Which yeah. one of which one of Marks here was the one that was that was guilty of probably many not, of your nightmares? Not present. Not present. It's not, not present. It's not this one. No. Has it been? Tomato steak, yeah. No, it's, no it's it's still the crazy the crazy <laughs> thing about snake. it is it's, despite the and I don't think we I don't have we ever talked on air about what happened with I that. I feel guy? like we no. just did. Here's what happened with that. <laughs> I didn't clean it. And then Ryan and I were gonna go For how long? I <laughs> just, He's a busy guy. The, the details of my guy. life are quite <laughs> inconsequential. Uh yeah, a but, while. Uh, between the last time I used it and then the next time I was going to use it. That's how long. I don't know. So it was in the same. It, of in years. Mark's defense, before Savage came out with a muzzleloader, I had just given up muzzleloading because I wasn't responsible enough to, no. to clean my gun. You get regular. home at the end of the yeah. day. You're busy. I'll yeah. do that later. And then next thing you know, a couple of years go by. Yeah. <laughs> so 
All right, so then you wanted you're to go looking home. at it, and then I mean, it's really like a scientific experiment. Like and as we're talking about Jim, you, know, you look down the barrel, like, oh, stalactites, stalagmites. That's interesting. Ryan, can you get these out? Yeah, yeah. Well, as per usual, Mark decided that it was time to go hunting, and so he went down to his in-house um, gunsmith, optic smith, um, gear smith, life smith, Ryan Muckenhern, life coach, life coach, and said, "Please help me." It involved a power drill, <laughs> a ramrod, and three or four 28-gauge brushes, some Dawn dish soap, some boiling water, uh, and then um, some petroleum-based lubricants to try and slow the, the process down. Well, what was interesting is Mark's muzzleloader started at approximately 50 caliber when it, it rolled off the line. By the time I got it, it was approximately 45 caliber. <laughs> By the time Mark got it back, it was 49 and a half. Um, but it shoots really good. It really does. It shoots like it shoots just a hair over a minute at a hundred yards, and for you know a modern for, in line, yeah. it, that's right in in the the realm of normal uh, with it. But it do was, you stuff fifty cal bullets down it, or you have to make bullets special? No, for its no, new it, it'll take a fifty. And a half. I've never loaded that one with say bows. I, I use a full bore bullet. That's kind of an interesting uh, design. Actually, this one shoots very well out of a tooth. It's an interesting bullet from Federal. That's not a say bow. It is not. It's. It's like a hybrid. Yeah, kind of. The bullets I, I was shooting out of Mark's uh, are now discontinued, so I, I bought all of them I can because I shoot them out of some other guns. was from our friends at Hornady. It was called the FPB, uh, which was a expanding base bullet, mm-hmm. not unlike a, what was called a Manet ball, which was a revolutionary projectile design. So the base is hollow. So Luke talks about that uh, obturation in which the bullet goes into somewhat of a fluid state to fill the void you know, between land and groove, this has a base that's cut out that upon ignition, it flares and Hmm. captures that and then shoots. And I think the forgiveness of that bullet and the leeway granted by that Mm -hmm. flexible base is why Mark's gun and my gun, because mine unfortunately succumbed to, I I borrowed it out to somebody, they forgot about the hole, you got to clean it once you shoot a thing. Um, So it's bore also uh, now does not look, like I wanted it to. But it just promotes better, uh, what's the word, when the bullet expands and engages the right? Obturation. Rec- Obturation. Yeah, yeah. There is something that you said to that resistance. Yeah. It, Thank well, you, Luke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the uh, the misfire stories I have are with, with smokeless are guys that have, it's their first shot, they've left some oil in the bore, and it's too slick, and the bullet just shoots down the barrel oh. and doesn't build the pressure. So it's kind of... Yeah. Yeah. Those FPBs, because I, I didn't know they discontinued those. They are those. gone. And so I should probably hold on to the ones I have. But to me, Ryan, like I used to shoot out of that 54 Remington power belts. And to me, it was almost like a built-in power belt, you know, without yeah. that little plastic. Like the plastic cup on the end was just built into the bullet, Correct. if yep. you will. Yep. So the, it was funny because they used 160-year-old tech. They brought it back. Right. It worked real good. So this fills that void. This and kind what of bullet bullet. is that? This is a Federal Borlock MZ. It's a 270-grain projectile. And in terms of like a modern muzzle-loading bullet, save for Luke's arrowheads, um, it's it's about as fast as you can get one without having to go to a Sabbat uh, or, or as high BC and high performance. And I actually am really quite content with these. They shoot very well. I don't know if you've ever had anybody shoot these down yours. Uh, no, okay. I don't think so. Um, and there's no need to, though. That's the right. thing. It's it's a completely different animal altogether. Oh, my gosh. Right. I would... Uh, uh, Power Belt did come out with their new ELR mm-hmm. bullet. They're selling with the Paramount, so sure. I would throw that into the sure. into the ring with yep. that one, guys. Like a, a high BC, yeah. 
like the next step up in projectile technology for this style of muzzleloader. But I've been I've been real happy with these. You can get some higher velocities out of them. They're a little bit lighter weight than what I'm usually used to shooting, like a 350 grain pill. I um, love how big muzzleloader yeah, projectiles are. It's a grande. Yeah, they're large. <laughs> and it, it does a, it does a really wonderful job uh, for for that kind of system. Uh, for the more for lack of a better term, traditional or yeah. just kind of like your your standard inline muzzle. Well, I think we can start saying traditional inline. Tradition. I think we're yeah. there. We're about yeah, there, aren't we? Are there. There. That's pretty crazy. That makes me feel old. Yeah, traditional yeah, right. inline. Whereas back on the, the cleanliness thing, yeah, you don't clean them. They go south really quick. I have patched my arrowhead gun when I got done with it because we were in wet environment when we were out hunting. Uh, it was snowing when we were out there. So, I mean, just, you know, regular oxidation of steel due to mm. moisture, but the bore looks exactly the same as it did when I took it out of the package because I, I have only shot smokeless powder out of it. So yeah. no different than I, Jim 6.5 Creed. I did want to get to care. You know, how do you care for a muzzleloader? But before we get there, we've talked a lot about, I mean, these, you know, Luke's muzzleloaders, I mean, they are long range precision muzzleloaders. Everything about these single shot rifle, rifle muzzleloaders is like, the utmost of precision down to the bullets. Now, in contrast to what I used to do with like that old Remington there where I had a powder measure and I had a powder horn and I'd click this brass powder measure to the hundred mark, pour my powder in, pour it down the barrel. That's not how you're measuring your charges for this thing. No. Maybe go into that a little bit. Sure. So, and actually it applies to Blackhorn 209 as well. You can, you can use your volumetric measurement, measurement, you know, your, black powder measure with Blackhorn 209, but if you weigh your volumetric measured Blackhorn 209 charges, you'll see like two to three grains of, of weight variation. So right. uh, Blackhorn 209, I, there's there's a ratio. So 150 grains by volume is not 150 grains by weight with Blackhorn 209. So you want to understand that mm-hmm. ratio before you go off with Blackhorn 209. Uh, with smokeless, it, not apples, to, like like what we've talked about. If, if you have... If you don't know what you're doing with smokeless, just don't do it. Stop just, right I, there. You know, I've already touched on it. It's just so important. I want to want to reiterate that. But with smokeless, it's it's like you're reloading for a cartridge, so you need the powder scale. You have to weigh out each charge. You know, you can't use that black powder volumetric mm-hmm. measuring system. Uh, my guns also shoot Blackhorn 209 really well, so that's I think okay. maybe we touched on that. But it's um, I guess my slogan is the best smokeless guns make the best Blackhorn 209 guns because uh, Blackhorn is, a, you know, it's in that kind of gray area between yep. the two. But so, that's good to know, though, because like you were talking about, you know, maybe in some states you can't use a true smokeless. Right. So you can get this gun and depending on what state you're in, maybe adjust what you're doing. Right. And that's where, you know, I got my start down in Iowa where it's shotgun and muzzleloader only. I guess they have the pistol cartridge rifles now, which will get you a little bit better than a slug gun. But the Midwest generally is smokeless okay. I think Michigan's kind of your one exception. But then most of the, the Western, like elk hunting states, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Nevada, those are all going to be no smokeless powder. Gotcha. So that's, mm. yeah. But across the board, you recommend everybody uses either a, a like a, a balance or a digital. Yes, absolutely. To, to, right. Yeah, then, in the precision game, that's that, yeah. that's what you need to do. Yeah. And just out of curiosity, um, I've never shot Blackhorn out of, of mine. I've only shot Smokeless. Like, are you seeing comparable numbers? I mean, the, you don't get those five feet per second. Sure. SD. I mean, you, you can sometimes get single-digit 
yep. SDs. I mean, it's still really good, but you're, velocity-wise, you're dropping down three or 400 feet per second. You're going to be that 2,500 feet per second range with a 300-grain bullet. Sure. And mm-hmm. when you guys are so. talking SDs, you're talking about essentially shooting multiple shots, having a chronograph, and basically the standard deviation of velocities between the aggregate of those shots. Right. Yeah. Okay. And that's the whole story when it comes to long range shooting, right? Cause Mark that's it. Good. <laughs> I've been, li- I've been listening and learning on these podcasts. Holy buckets. <laughs> well, I just thought, cause we're throwing some, we're yeah, throwing we some terminology to nerd out a little bit there. You so said yeah, aggregate. Yeah. Oh, I know. I, I had to double take too. I'm going to drink my coffee over here. God, I love surprising you guys. <laughs> You know, for all we know, I surprised you last week too. I can't remember what it was, Jim, but it happened. Uh, for all we know, Mark's got a full reloading setup at home and has been under our own noses. Know, Mark runs his own private military group. <laughs> it's not a militia. It's now the I have to kill group you. Of friends. He well, they have to kill you. But. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. So ex- expect at, at least, anyways, for the shooter out there, and possibly some of those powder restricted states, you're still getting remarkably better performance out of this kind of gun versus that kind of right. gun, even shooting Blackhorn 209. Is there are any, you sending, when a person buys a rifle, do you send them a scale as well? Is it like, here's everything? I, I don't. I, I do have, I, I mean, if they need a scale, I'll send one. Uh-huh. I'll, I'd say the above 50% of the guys I'm selling to already reload and one. stuff. But, gotcha. I mean, not that's not to deter someone that doesn't reload. If you're getting into extreme Because they're not that loading, much anyway, are they? You should. 30 bucks. 30 bucks, yeah. yeah. Big deal. Yeah. yeah. Is there any way to make these traditional style ones shoot like is there any way to make them high performance you know like engine swap them or like you know whatever or are they pretty much like is powder and bullets the only thing that you can really do to uh i mean it gets like the the omega i was actually telling ryan before this uh jeff fisk with be still creations he does he he'll do a whole makeover on an omega with a rebarrel and stuff and Hmm. they're not gonna be this with a bolt to action just because you've you've got a lighter contour barrel with screw holes in it and stuff so it's it's more than what it is now but not to this level the mm-hmm. 700 ml i actually played around with hundreds of those rebarreling them and stuff but they're they don't have a locking lug action so with with my latest breech plug system the bolt isn't going to see quite the same pressures as a true center fire, but it's getting up there. When that 700 ml, that vintage, it actually the screw you see in the side of the action there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the lug for the bolt. So you, you can't do something that lets a lot of pressure back on the bolt with okay. that. So it's you can you can rate you know soup them up some, but not to this level. Got it. Okay. Yeah. What off shelf muzzleloaders that folks have now can you hop up? Well, I've got. I partner with Match Grade Machine for an encore barrel, mm-hmm. so that's real easy. That's a, you know just buy a barrel, take your old one off, put the new one on. Or that also is one of those TC encores. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and would that then make it throwing on a new barrel would make it able to withstand greater pressures or? Right. Well, it's a it's the whole combination: the breech plug system, the oh, barrel. And it's got the okay. Yeah, because you you run it. the LRMP modules with the encore as well. You can do a shotgun primer as well, but okay. it, it's a. I set up the plug for that gun to headspace out the same, so you can just swap the plug out and use either the module system or the okay. shotgun primers. I recommend the module sure. system, but you can mm-hmm. use both. That's like a 300-yard gun. Some guys, you know, it's it's not a bolt gun where, you know, you've got five inches of inch and a quarter steel with, you know, no screw holes in it or anything. Right. And Encore, you're talking a one inch here with a bunch of screw holes for right. the scope base and stuff. So not as 
Plus, it's all sitting right in your face. So right. we don't. We just don't push those <laughs> as hard. Uh, yeah. You know, really, any center fire action can be rebarreled since it's you know a three hundred eight case head. And that's where that that's started. This, yep. Yeah, with that. Uh, as far as other guns, I mean, that's. I mean, there's, you know, if you find a gunsmith with with time and money, there's you know a lot of the inlines, but I'm really don't have. Beyond the Encore, that's about all I'm messing gotcha. with now. I, I do have some parts for the 700 ML. You know, I'll kind of point guys in the right direction mm-hmm. with those, but I don't work on them Got anymore. It. Got it. Well, muzzleloader care real quick. The beauty of the smokeless, I mean, less less corrosion, less yeah. care. I mean, it's. I mean, like you're talking about your centerfire rifle, Jim. I mean, yep. I mean, you can treat it basically the same. I've gone. I I'm think not going to say three, don't care for your rifle, three, but sure. So I think I've gone close to 300 shots without cleaning a gun. It was it was getting rather choppy. Like this, you know, these Brux barrels are like glass when they're clean, and you okay. just, it's so smooth down. But 300 shots in, you could you could feel the build up and is stuff. It, and is the, that powder or is that jacket? I think it was both. Okay. The one thing, you know, with a muzzler, it's all about first shot consistency, mm-hmm. right? If, if it's for hunting, right? You can go to the range and, and just shoot and shoot accurate, but it's all about the, the first shot for hunting. I mean, I'm a hunter. That's why, why I got into it, so I could shoot deer in Iowa further. But the, if, you, if you shoot this gun, smokeless, put it away, you're not going to get any corrosion. You know, no, no worries about that. It's just like a rifle. Well, you come back to the range, and that first bullet, and you may have experienced mm-hmm. this, where the powder residue crystallizes, gets really hard, and acts builds up just enough to where that first bullet will load really hard. Once mm-hmm. you shoot it once or twice, it clears out and it's fine. Okay, but the uh, I mean, there's a couple remedies for it. It's you can either pull the breech plug and push a size bullet through the barrel a couple oh, of times sure, just yeah. to knock it down a little bit, or or dry patch it. But not you don't want to do a a deep clean because then you then you have a clean bore situation, which will alter your first shot as well. So you just kind of want to take the edge off of it. So that first shot huh, loads okay. like a fouled barrel. Yeah. And I, I did the, uh, push the size bore down or size bullet down several times. What I didn't want to do is keep pulling my breech plug out and putting it back in right. and pulling it out. Cause I didn't want like particulate to get on the threads and start goofing that up. So then I, I did dry patching and it worked phenomenally yeah. well. Yeah. So, and that's uh, that actually Blackhorn two hundred nine is probably maybe a little more important than Smokeless. Yeah, but, uh, that's that's probably some you know with a Sabo that kind of acts as a buffer and it's maybe not as important. But for somebody with you know more conventional inline, that's really anal about accuracy. That may be a a good thing to to implement in your mm. your regimen. And then everything else you just treat like you would just your like centerfire rifle. Yeah, yeah. and like you said, even if that initial bullet after that. You know, muzzle it clears has been it resting out. for a while. I mean, as long as you get it seated and, yeah. you know, you, I mean, it's I d- safe well, to so fire. Well, so I then... don't, I mean, you can go a couple days if it's not raining or whatever and leave it low. I mean, the, you can go a year and the gun will still fire. The Especially with, with this system where it's a, a bullet on bore, I, d- I don't like leaving it leaving it in the barrel for extended times because you've got copper with which can oxidize. Okay. And it'll actually somewhat cement itself in the barrel. And I've I've had customers that, don't read instructions and have you know fired it after a year and they've I mean they've blown out their they haven't like damaged the barrel but they uh-huh. they did create an overpressure situation from that bullet sitting there over time. Yeah. The other thing I don't like about leaving it loaded is you if you go to the range next year 
and that I mean, and you shove you, another you bullet shove down. another bullet oh, down, yeah. yeah. And that that's something I I wanted to get to. And it's a good time to talk about, it, but a, a witness mark on your ramrod, oh, and yeah. that's any muzzleloader. Yeah. Uh, that you know, of course, you got to look at it if it's there, but it makes me cringe when I see people loading the muzzleloader and don't have some. Oh, because I mean, mark. it could it could kill you. Absolutely. Or, yeah. I mean, you know, definitely. Lose a hand, lose an eye. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, man. So I that's a witness mark yeah. is you're just putting a physical visual indicator on your ramrod when you have a charge in the muzzleloader. So a like lone a, charge. A single fully charge. <laughs> a fully seated yep. single charge in the muzzleloader. You stick your ramrod down, and that winds up, I guess, just with the... The muzzle. The muzzle. Yeah. The, yeah. And you just got... And, you know, if you're at the range talking to buddies, not good to do with a muzzleloader. Right. It's so easy. It's like, it's like sitting at your reloading bench with three buddies and trying to reload. We've that. done that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't uh, confirm that I <laughs> screwed up a cartridge or two because of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so easy to do. I mean, it's like yeah. driving and texting almost. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. stuff. Puts it in perspective. Well, yeah. muzzleloaders. While you're making a bomb. Right. <laughs> like, that's, Texting and driving use, while making a bomb. Use a witness mark. Yeah. Man, try saying that on an airplane. <laughs> Bring a witness when you make bombs no. while texting and driving. Okay. Uh, good stuff. Well, muzzleloaders muzzle are cool. They've come a long way. They've it's, come yeah. quite a long way. To the point, like we said, I mean, basically like a single-load rifle or a single-shot rifle, you stuff yep. the bullet down the barrel. Load from the front. I dig it. Luke, well, thanks a ton for joining us yeah, on this man. one. And as always, if anybody, yeah, now you know, it's Arrowhead It's Arrowhead Rifles now, right? Correct. Okay, so yeah, hit uh, hit Luke up if you have any questions about wanting to uh, get into high-performance muzzle loading, or even if you have questions about your more uh, traditional style or, or whatever, inline, because he's the go-to. He's the, he's the trad rifle guy. Guy smart. Indeed. Yes. Sweet. Well, with that said... I think we'll catch everybody next time. We're well probably into, uh, this can't even be the first one that we released in 2020. We've had a couple podcasts probably at this point in 2020. So, hey, hope you're enjoying 2020, future people. <laughs> Who right knows? On. A couple days, everybody listening might be in their hovercrafts. Flying Could around. happen. Well, looking at this muzzle litter, I'd believe it. <laughs> Darn right. <laughs> All righty. Happy hunting and shooting, everybody. We'll catch you next time. See ya. Bye. Bye. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So, again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.